So we're continuing this week our study in 1 Peter. We are in chapter 3 now. Thank you for turning on the fans, Josh. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 22 this week. Open with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to, to share from your word today the truths contained therein. Help me to present in a clear manner. Help these things that we, we see in this text to lay them on our heart. Use them to influence our lives, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We left off, we finished through verse 12 last week. I want to read from verse 8 through the end of the chapter to give you this, the flow of this whole section um, before we dive in at verse 13. So 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 8. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He, has, he was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So kind of a long section there in, in the, that lead up to, to verse 13 was the section we talked about last week where he gave those instructions of live in harmony with one another. And, and how do you do that is by be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate, be humble, do not repay evil for evil, do not repay insult with insult. He said, but bless instead. And then he finishes that section. So here are these instructions of what you should do. Live in this manner amongst yourselves. And then he finishes that with this 
text taken from Psalm 34, where he says, to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Right? Do all these things, you will receive blessing because of it. But then remember, who's his audience? Right? Who's he talking to? He's talking to, if you go back to chapter one, verse one, he's talking to the elect who are scattered through the world. They are, they are strangers. They're not necessarily experiencing all these good things. But he, he starts off verse 13 here. After closing out this, you will receive blessing if you do these. And he says, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Right? If you are doing good things, who, who should desire to harm you? Right? That's, his, that's the question. And he had, he's posed this in different manners before. In 1 Peter 2, verse 12, he said, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. He's been, he's been pointing to this. Live good lives. And even Proverbs 16, 7 says, When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies live at peace with him. So he's not pulling this out of some health and wealth gospel. He's not just saying, you know, if you do all these things, you're going to receive blessing. And it's not that he has no foundation for it. He has scriptural foundation for it. And I've talked before that by God's design, this is how the world is supposed to work. Right? Things, when you follow God's rules, things generally go well for you. He made this world. He made the way it works. That is how it's intended to work. Yet we live in a world that is influenced by sin, where people are influenced by sin, whose motivations are evil. And I wanted to kind of rephrase that sentence, where if you are passionately committed to what is beautiful, just, and good, Right, doing good. But I wanted to make sure and say, according to the standard of God's word, not by your own standards or the standard of popular opinion of the world, but by God's standard, and you still have enemies, then you're under persecution. So who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? That good is not up to you. It is not a subjective good. It is good as defined by God. It is as defined by Scripture. We live in a world that defines good in so many different ways, but God has definition of what good is. So keep that in mind, because you'll, you'll encounter that, this differing opinions of what is good, and God has the opinion. God has a definition of good. And he even hinted to this in 1 Peter 2 and verse 20 when he was talking about everyone's favorite sections about submission, about slaves submitting to masters. But in verse 20 there, he talks about how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. This receiving punishment even though you do good, that is what we are talking about this week, the suffering for doing good. As I was doing some prep for this, I was listening to a few different sermons, and, and one 
one preacher, he ran through like a list of different sufferings. And I was like, oh, that's not a bad idea. Like I could point out, you know, we've had a couple families in this church that have lost their houses to fires recently. Um, we know a lot, we have lots of people who are enduring different sicknesses, cancers, just general illness. We have lots of suffering that's occurring. Yet the, the suffering he's talking about here is when you suffer for doing good. This is persecution. It's not just a general suffering because we all, there's lots of suffering in general. There are lots of ways that sin has affected our world and it causes suffering amongst us. This suffering that Peter's talking about falls under the heading of persecution. You are specifically suffering because you are a follower of Christ. You are doing good as defined by God and you are suffering for it. He, that verse 13 says, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? He jumps into the next verse and says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. He says, there is no guarantee that if you do what is good, that you will receive blessing. You may very well suffer for it. The, the, the way God has set up the world to work, you should receive blessing. But we live in a world that's influenced by sin. We are surrounded by people that are influenced by sin. And you may very well suffer for what is right, for doing good. And that's part of this audience he's talking to. First Peter 1.6 says, Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. He is speaking to an audience that is experiencing these things. In verse in First Peter two eighteen, he's talking to those slaves to submit, and he says, "Submit even to harsh masters. You are enduring hardship." In First Peter three one, he talks about wives being in submission to their unbelieving husbands. You are enduring things that are difficult. You are receiving hardship. You are suffering grief and all kinds of trials. So life is not easy for Peter's audience. They're dealing with hard things. They are people under persecution. It may not be a continual and constant persecution, but it is there. They are suffering for what is right at times. Matthew chapter five, verses 10 through 12. Jesus, Jesus speaks to this. where he says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who are before you. So when Peter says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed, he's not pulling this out of a vacuum. This is, even Christ spoke of this during his ministry. When you suffer for doing what is good, you are blessed. It's the words of Christ. The persecuted will have great rewards in heaven. They are in good company. Many of the Old Testament prophets were persecuted. That's, he read Isaiah, right? He, Isaiah did not have 
easy life because he was a prophet. His life was difficult because he was, was a prophet. But that second half of verse 14, he says, do not fear what they fear, do not be frightened. That goes back to the scripture reading from earlier today. That is from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12. That background of the nation of Assyria is going to be used to judge the nation of Israel for rejecting God, turning to other nations for deliverance from their enemies. It says, do not fear what they fear. Your you should not have anxiety over the same thing that the world around you has anxiety over. And in verse 13 of Isaiah chapter 8, either if you're there, if you remember from earlier, it says, the Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. So he says, do not fear what they are to fear. Fear the Lord. This nation coming to attack you is not the thing that you are to be afraid of. You are to be afraid of God. Have the fear of the Lord. Do not have misplaced fears. As believers, we are not to fear the things that unbelievers fear. We are to fear God above all others. And a proper fear of God should drive out lesser fears. You're not to fear public opinion. You're not to fear enemies, calamity, we are to fear God above all else. That's what he's talking about. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. Do not have a misplaced fear. Fear God above all others. He goes into verse 15. He says in response to that, but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Right? Christ is Lord. He has authority. Peter reemphasizes this at the end of this section in verse 22, where he says, Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him, in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. He has authority. So when you are having this fear, don't have that misplaced fear. Remember who's in charge, even though sometimes it may not seem like it. And yet he goes on after saying, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. He says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. So if you live as Peter instructs, if you fear God instead of man, Chances are you will be asked why you live as you do, because you will stand out. It is not very common to live in the fear of God versus the fear of man. So you'll be asked about that. Be ready to give an answer. So you must be fully convinced of the truth of God's word if you are to endure persecution. And this may be before a judge, when you have to give a defense for obeying God rather than men. We see that throughout the book of Acts, different times when they're brought before a council and charged, and they say, we must obey God rather than men. Or it may be in your everyday life as you interact with unbelieving friends and coworkers, and they say, why do you, why do you act this way? Why are you different? Be prepared to give an answer for that. 
This is the Greek word that is used here. I don't speak Greek, so I'm taking this from other, other sources. But the Greek word used here is apologia, where we get the English word apologetics, which is this idea, doesn't mean that you're apologizing all the time. Some people hear the word apologetics and they're like, I don't want to do that. It sounds like you're apologizing for everything. That's, that's not what it means. It's, it's being ready to give a defense for your faith. It is understanding what you believe. It is understanding why you believe it. And then being able to articulate your beliefs, being able to defend your faith, which is something that all Christians should be working towards, growing in your knowledge of the truth to be able to defend your faith, to, to give an answer when, it is present, when a question is presented to you. And he, in the end of verse 15, he says the attitude in which you do this. He says, but do this with gentleness and respect. Not proud, not arrogant. So if you know all the facts, you know all the arguments for the Christian faith, and you are proud about it and arrogant, and don't show gentleness and respect, people will not be very receptive to you. You'll be hard-pressed to see that positive outcome from it. It is to be prepared to defend your faith, but with gentleness and respect. And there's this idea of, I was, once was where you are. I was once the unbeliever. I was once in need of God to open my eyes, to show me these truths. Approach others with gentleness and respect as, as you share your faith, as you defend your faith. He continues in verse 16, that running 15 into 16 says, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So don't sin in your response. Have that clear conscience. Give them no reason to have a charge against you as you defend your faith. Your conduct should be so good that they have to slander you if they are to bring any accusations against you that brings shame to the one accusing you. They have to make things up. He continues on in verse 17 where he says, It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. There's a couple things that you see here where he says, it is better if it is God's will. Unjust suffering is not outside of God's control. Rather, if you suffer unjustly, it is within the will of God, is what Peter is saying. It is better if it is God's will. Right? God uses even the hard things, even the sufferings in life, to, to work good things. And at the same time, no one desires to suffer, and we shouldn't have this desire for suffering. It's easy, you, if you study the life of Martin Luther, and one of the things that he dealt with was as a monk, they would whip themselves because they're like trying to punish themselves for their own sins. They're trying to create the sense of suffering that maybe they can suffer enough that they can, they can feel worthy. And it was one of the things he struggled with because the, the more he did that, the less, the less worthy he felt, right? He was 
recognizing that he could not pay for his own sins. Your suffering does not pay for your sins. That's taken care of in Christ. But it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Which calls back to 1 Peter 2, verse 20, where he's talking about slaves submitting to masters. And he says, but how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? Like what, what glory is there to God if you do something wrong and you receive the just punishment in it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Receiving that suffering for doing good, right, is, is honorable. And he points out why, which is, this has been a running theme throughout First Peter. He, he always goes back to Christ when he talks about this in chapter 2 right after talking about slaves being in submission to their masters, he then points them to Christ. For Christ, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, right? Christ suffered unjustly. You can suffer unjustly. Which is where he goes in verse 18. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. So you're in good company when you suffer unjustly. Not only do you have Old Testament prophets you can look back to, but you have Christ. If you, the, the poster child, you might say, of suffering unjustly is Christ. He who committed no sin became sin. He endured the shame of the cross, the, that punishment, the beatings. He suffered unjustly. And therefore, you are imitating Christ when you suffer unjustly. Again, your goal is not to go looking for ways to suffer injustice. If you live as a Christian, it will come, you will, you will experience it. This verse also tells us about salvation, where it says, Christ died for sins once for all. This picture of the atonement, of the fulfillment of the sacrificial system that was given in the law, that, that system that required ongoing continual sacrifices year after year that only covered sins. That's why they had to continually be done over again. Could not be brought to an end without a perfect sacrifice, which we have in Christ. He died for sins once for all, that's why we don't sac have animal sacrifices. Christ fulfilled that. He took care of it. The righteous for the unrighteous, right? This Christ, the perfect one, taking our place. Christ's sacrifice was sufficient to cover all your sin for all time. He died for sins once for all. And the next phrase there is to bring you to God, right? Christ's sacrifice was not in vain. It makes Christians right with God. And it is the only way to be right with God. You can't do it through enduring suffering. It is only through Christ. And 
This is a nice little, nice, I wanted to say proof text for verses 17 and verses 14, where the death of Christ is unjust, yet we receive immeasurable blessing for it. Where he says in verse 14, even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Right? Christ died for sins once for all, and great blessing came from it. Right? He endured suffering unjustly. Forgiveness of sins came from it. You have received the blessing of his suffering. That verse 14, even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. <clears throat> and again in verse 17 where he said, it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Right? Christ suffered for doing good. He did not suffer for doing evil. He suffered for doing good. And it was better. Good came out of it. The forgiveness of sins came out of it. You receive that immeasurable blessing because of it. So Peter's telling us that when believers suffer persecution unjustly, they look to the example of Christ. He will, that God will use injustice to bring about blessing. That in spite of all the difficulty, he brought good things out of, out of that. And it says in verse 18, he was put to death in the body, but made alive by the spirit. Telling us he did not stay dead. Right? Christ died a real physical death. His body was in the grave, yet he was raised to new life pointing out the, the resurrection of Christ. So then that brings us to the next section, verses 19 through 22. And as I was reading this, I was like, I'm not sure exactly how to approach this. It can be kind of confusing. And the commentary that I've been reading alongside this passage, he says... 1 Peter 3, verses 18b through 22 is by all accounts the most difficult passage to interpret in 1 Peter, and some say the entire New Testament. So I'm not going to stand up here and say, here's exactly what is meant by this, because if I did, you should probably throw me out. <laughs> um, what I want to do is I want to be careful I don't drive us into a ditch as I'm approaching this. I don't want to give you ideas about come up with some new doctrine you've never heard of based on this, based on this text. So I want to try to state the main clear points of what is contained here and avoid coming up with anything that is based specifically on what seems to be a kind of obscure and difficult to understand passage. Sort of the things we can glean from these verses uh, sort of starting in verse 19 through the end here. We learn Jesus preached in the spirit, right? The end of verse 18 says, he was put to death in the body, but made alive by the spirit, through whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison. It doesn't tell us what was preached. We don't, we don't know what was said. Uh, some of the study I said the Greek word used means to make a proclamation. It is not a word that says he specifically went and preached the gospel. It, it says he made a proclamation. 
could have been the good news of the gospel. could have been something else. That word does not say it. And so who is the audience that he, spoke, that he preached to? Right? It said he preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Some of the commentaries I read said, well, the word spirits always refers to non-human spiritual beings, unless there's a qualifier there. Other commentaries didn't say that. <laughs> so that makes it really fun to try to figure out as I'm trying to glean information. Um, that the, Some of them said this typically refers to evil spirits or fallen angels, right? I honestly don't know. Some things that you can glean from this. It says God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. And if you go back to Genesis 6 and read through that passage, one of the things you'll notice there is it talks about God gave essentially 120 years from his initial warning until the flood came. So when it says God waited patiently, God waited, gave 120 years warning before he destroyed the earth with the flood. How patient is that? I don't even, who do you know that's lived 120 years, right? That's, that's, that's a good amount of time. God waited patiently as Noah built that ark. So I draw from that the patience of God. We have this emphasis that God is patient. And he talks about how in that ark only a few people, eight in all. So you had Noah, his wife, his sons, and their wives. Right? You had these eight people that made it through, were saved through water. But was it, actually, was it the water that saved Noah? It was God looked down and saw that Noah was like the only righteous man. It was the righteousness of Noah that saved Noah. He was saved in spite of the water, right? He was saved in the ark through the water. But it was because of his righteousness that he was saved. And he, Peter goes on here, and you could... He says this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Right? You can say, wow, we are saved by baptism according to this passage. Is some, you could read that and take that little sentence and draw that out. And, but that's not what he's saying. Right? He said it wasn't the water that saved Noah. It was Noah's righteousness. In a similar fashion, it's not the act of baptism that saved believers. Rather, it is faith. Because he, he continues on, and in the end of 21, he says, it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Your salvation is because of Christ. We have the assurance of, of that because Christ's resurrection. He died, he rose again. God's acceptance of his sacrifice. Your baptism is a pledge to that faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
So in those verses, the one thing I wanted to point out was if you ever encounter anybody who's like come up with some, some doctrines based specifically on these verses, you should probably run away because it's not, it's not a clear enough passage to be able to like base things on. You could look at this and say, oh, people can be saved after they die. Christ and the Spirit preached to those in prison, right? Well, we know from other passages that that's, that's not how it works. It is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. You could look at that and say, well, baptism saves you also, right? Well, no. You are not saved through baptism. You are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, his resurrection. So if nothing else, this is like, how do you handle difficult passages of scripture, right? We go to the other scriptures that we know are clear on these topics, and we interpret the difficult passages through the easier to interpret passages. And the end of this, this passage, 21 and 22, it calls attention to Jesus' resurrection, his ex exaltation, and his power over all things. Right? When he talked about baptism, he talks about it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Tying that all into his previous writings about enduring persecution and about how, and pointing to Christ as that model for persecution and the blessing that can come even when you suffer for doing what is right. right. Christ suffered for doing what is right. And in the process, he made the payment for sin. And as a result, he is now in heaven, seated at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Something good came out of the persecution of Christ. So believers can endure persecution because Christ endured the greatest persecution, right? He was the least deserving of persecution of any. No sin committed whatsoever, and yet he takes on all sin. So believers can look to Christ in the midst of persecution for their example. I had an email yesterday from the Voice of the Martyrs um, that talked about two pastors in Eritrea. If some of you are on their mailing list, you may have read this also. But I was reading through it, and it talked about how they've been in prison, and they were suffering, um, but they, they would not recant their faith. And he mentioned like 7,000 days they've been enduring this. And I was like, okay. I did the math, and I was, that's over 20 years. These two pastors have been in prison for over 20 years. How do you endure over 20 years of that, right? All the, all the things that you've missed. You look towards Christ, the one who, who endured worse persecution than even 20 years. So we can draw from this whole passage that how you can look to Christ in the midst of persecution. You can look at not having misplaced fears, where you fear God above all else. That 
section where he said, do not fear what they fear, do not be frightened. Do not have misplaced fears. Fear God. Be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. Be ready to give an answer. It will come up. And remember that when you suffer persecution, you are not outside of God's will. He can use hard things in our lives to do good things. And lastly, that, that last section where Christ has all authority, take comfort in that. Live in light of it. Dear Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for your word. I thank you for the truths we can draw from it. And most of all, we thank you for Christ, the, the suffering that he endured to purchase salvation and that we can, we can partake in that, that we can look to that as our example. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand and sing hymn number 288. I would be like Jesus. Ultimately, as you read 1 Peter, that's part of what he's driving us to, is to be like Christ, to live in the midst of suffering, to know that in the future we'll be with him. Let's sing, I would be like Jesus. pleasures vainly call me I would be like Jesus nothing worldly shall enthrall me I would be like Jesus be like Jesus this my song in the home and in the throng be like Jesus all day long. I would be like Jesus. He has broken every fetter. I would be like Jesus. That my soul may serve him better. I would be like Jesus, be like Jesus, this my song, in the home and in the throng, be like Jesus all day long, I would be like Jesus, all the way from earth to glory I would be like Jesus telling o'er and o'er the story I would be like Jesus be like Jesus this my song in the home and in the throng be like Jesus all day long, I would be like Jesus, that in heaven he may 
meet me, I would be like Jesus. That his words, well done, may greet me, I would be like Jesus. Be like Jesus, this my song, in the home and in the throng. Be like Jesus all day long, I would be like Jesus. There's some children in here, 12 and under. What's throng mean? In the throng. In the home and in the throng. Anybody know? See, you sang a song, you didn't even know what the word means. You're in a throng now. It's a group of people in the throng. It can be out in the world, it can be wherever you're at, but it's a group of people. And so you want to be like Jesus in the home or out? A group of people. doesn't matter. All the time. Gracious Father, we're grateful for your love. Help us as we go to apply your words, to desire to be willing even to suffer for doing good, for being all that God wants us to be. For one day we will meet you and we will look forward to doing that, but we'll also be aware that no matter what we've gone through, it'll well be worth it to be in your presence. What a joy that will be one day. Help us as we go to serve you, to keep our eyes on you and our, our thoughts about you, that we might realize that no matter what life brings, the best is yet to come. Might all that we do bring glory to you in Christ's name. Amen. You are dismissed. Good job. Selah.